0: CD 2 May I assist you, good ladies?
1: It was a rich and wonderful voice, with every diphthong gliding beautifully into place. It was a golden brown voice. If the creator of the multiverse had a voice, it was a voice such as this. If it had a drawback, it was that it wasn't a voice you could use for example, for ordering coal. Coal ordered by this voice would become diamonds. It apparently belonged to a large fat man who had been badly savaged by a moustache. Pink veins made a map of quite a large city on his cheeks. His nose could have hidden successfully in a bowl of strawberries. He wore a ragged jerkin and holy tights with an aplomb that nearly convinced you that his velvet and vermin robes were in the wash just at the moment. In one hand, he held a towel, with which he had clearly been removing the makeup that still greased his features. I know you, said Granny. You done the murder. She looked sideways at McGrath, and admitted grudgingly. Leastways, it looked like it.
0: So glad. It's always a pleasure to meet a true connoisseur, Ulwyn the at your service manager of this band of vagabonds,
1: said the man, and removing his moth-eaten hat, he treated her to a low bow. It was less an obeisance than an exercise in advanced topology. The hat swerved and jerked through a series of complex arcs, ending up at the end of an arm which was now pointing in the direction of the sky. One of his legs, meanwhile, had wandered off behind him, The rest of his body sagged politely until his head was level with Granny's knees. Yes, well, (laughs) said Granny, she felt that her clothes had grown a bit larger and much hotter. I thought you was very good too, said Nanny Og. The way you shouted all them words so graciously, I could tell you was a king.
0: I hope we didn't upset things, said McGrath. My dear lady, said Vitola, could I begin to tell you how gratifying it is for a mere mummer to learn that his audience has seen behind the mere shell of grease paint to the spirit beneath?
1: I expect you could, said Granny. I expect you could say anything, Mr. Vitola. He replaced his hat and their eyes met in a long and calculating stare of one professional weighing up another. toller broke first, and tried to pretend he had not been competing.
0: And now, he said, to what do I owe this visit from three such charming ladies? In fact, he'd won.
1: Granny's mouth fell open. She would not have described herself as anything much above handsome, considering. Nanny, on the other hand, "'was as gummy as a baby "'and had a face like a small dried raisin. "'The best you could say for McGrath "'was that she was decently plain "'and well scrubbed "'and as flat-chested as an ironing board "'with a couple of peas on it, "'even if her head was too well stuffed with fancies. "'Granny could feel something, "'some sort of magic at work, "'but not the kind she was used to. "'It was Vitola's voice. "'By the mere process of articulation, "'it transformed everything it talked about.' Look at the two of them, she told herself, primping away like a couple of ninnies. Granny stopped her hand in the process of patting her own iron-hard bun and cleared her throat meaningfully. We'd like to talk to you, Mr Vitola. She indicated the actors, who were dismantling the set and staying well out of her way, and added with a conspiratorial whisper, Somewhere private.
0: "'Dear lady, but of a certain,' he said. "'Currently, I have lodgings in yon esteemed watering-hole.' "'The witches looked
1: around. "'Eventually, Magrat risked, "'You mean the pub?' "'It was cold and draughty in the great hall of Longcraw Castle, "'and the new Chamberlain's bladder wasn't getting any younger. "'He stood and squirmed under the gaze of Lady Felmott.' Oh, yes, he said, we've got them all right, lots. And people don't do anything about them, said the Duchess. The Chamberlain blinked. I'm sorry, he said. People tolerate them. "Oh, Indeed, said the Chamberlain happily. It's considered good luck to have a witch living in your village. My word, yes. Why? The Chamberlain hesitated. The last time he had resorted to a witch, it had been because certain rectal problems had turned the privy into a daily torture chamber, and the jar of ointment she had prepared had turned the world into a nicer place. "'They smooth out life's little humps and bumps,' he said.
0: "'Where I come from, we don't allow witches,' said the Duchess, sternly. "'And we don't propose to allow them here. You will furnish us with their addresses.' Addresses, ladyship. Where they live, and trust your tax gatherers know
1: where to find them. Ah, said the chamberlain miserably. The duke leaned forward on his throne. I trust, he said, that they do pay taxes. Not exactly pay taxes, my lord, said the chamberlain. There was silence. Finally, the duke prompted... Go on, man. Well, it's more that they don't pay, you see. We never felt, that is, the old king didn't think, well, they just don't. The duke laid a hand on his wife's arm. I see, he said coldly. Very well, you may go. The chamberlain gave him a brief nod of relief and scuttled crab-wise from the hall. Well, said the Duchess. Indeed.
0: That was how your family used to run a kingdom, was it? You had a positive duty to kill your cousin. It was clearly in the interests of the species, said the Duchess. The weak don't deserve to survive.
1: The Duke shivered. She would keep on reminding him. He didn't, on the whole, object to killing people or at least ordering them to be killed and then watching it happen but killing a kinsman rather stuck in the throat or, he recalled, the liver. Quite so, he managed.
0: Of course, there would appear to be many witches and it might be difficult to find the three that were on the moor. That doesn't matter. Of course not. Put matters in hand, love.
1: Matters in hand, he'd put matters in hand all right. If he closed his eyes, he could see the body tumbling down the steps. Had there been a hiss of shocked breath, down in the darkness of the hall? He'd been certain they were alone. Matters in hand, he'd tried to wash the blood off his hand. If he could wash the blood off, he told himself, It wouldn't have happened. He scrubbed and scrubbed, scrubbed till he screamed. Granny wasn't at home in public houses. She sat stiffly to attention behind her port and lemon, as if it were a shield against the lures of the world. Nanny Og, on the other hand, was enthusiastically downing her third drink. And... Granny thought sourly, was well along that path which would probably end up with her usual dancing on the table, showing her petticoats and singing The Hedgehog Can Never Be Buggered At All. The table was covered with copper coins. Vitola and his wife sat at either end, counting. It was something of a race. Granny considered Mrs. Vitola as she snatched farthings from under her husband's fingers. She was an intelligent-looking woman who appeared to treat her husband much as a sheepdog treats a favourite lamb. The complexities of the marital relationship were known to Granny only from a distance, in the same way that an astronomer can view the surface of a remote and alien world. But it had already occurred to her that a wife, to Vitola, would have to be a very special woman with bottomless reserves of patience and organisational ability and nimble fingers. Mrs Vitola she said eventually. May I make so bold as to ask if your union has been blessed with fruit? The couple looked blank. She means, Annie Og began. No, I see, said Mrs. Vitola quietly. No, we had a little girl once. A small cloud hung over the table. For a second or two Vitola looked merely human sized and much older. He stared at the small pile of cash in front of him. Only, you see, there is this child, said Granny, indicating the baby in Nanny Og's arms. And he needs a home. The Vitola stared, then the man sighed.
0: It's no life for a child, he said. Always moving, always a new town, and no room for schooling. They say it's very important these days. But his eyes didn't look away.
1: Mrs. Vitola said, Why does he need a home? He hasn't got one, said Granny. At least, not one where he would be welcome. The silence continued. Then Mrs. Vitola said, And you, who ask this, you are by way of being his godmother's, said Nanny Ogg promptly. Granny was slightly taken aback. It would never have occurred to her. Vitola played abstractedly with the coins in front of him. His wife reached out across the table and touched his hand, and there was a moment of unspoken communion. Granny looked away. She had grown expert at reading faces, but there were times when she preferred not to.
0: Money is a last tight,
1: Vitola began. But it will stretch said his wife firmly.
0: Yes, I think it will. We should be happy to take care of him. Granny nodded
1: and fished in the deepest recesses of her cloak. At last, she produced a small leather bag, which she tipped out onto the table. There was a lot of silver and even a few tiny gold coins. This should take care of She groped, nappies and such like, clothes and things, whatever.
0: A hundred times over, I should think, said Vitola weakly. Why didn't you mention this before?
1: If I'd had to buy you, you wouldn't be worth the price. But you don't know anything about us, said Mrs Vitola. We don't, do we, said Granny calmly. Naturally, we'd like to hear how he gets along. You could send us letters and such like. But it would not be a good idea to talk about all this after you've left, you see, for the sake of the child. Mrs. Vitola looked at the two old women. There's something else, isn't there, she said. Something big behind all this. Granny hesitated and then nodded. But it would do us no good at all to know it. Another nod. Granny stood up as several actors came in, breaking the spell. Actors had a habit of filling all the space around them. I have other things to see to, she said. Please excuse me. What's his name? Said Vitola. Tom said Granny, hardly hesitating. John, said Nanny. The two witches exchanged glances. Granny won. Tom, John, she said firmly and swept out. She met a breathless Magrat outside the door. I found a box, she said. It had all the crowns and things in, so I put it in, like you said, right underneath everything. Good, said Granny. Our crown looked really tatty compared to the others. Just goes to show, doesn't it, said Granny. Did anyone see you? No, everyone was too busy, but... McGrath hesitated. She blushed. Out with it, girl. Just after that, a man came up and pinched my bottom. McGrath went a deep crimson and slapped her hand over her mouth. Did he? Said Granny. And then what?
0: And then... And then,
1: yes, he said, he said, what did he say? He said, hello, my lovely, what are you doing tonight? Granny ruminated on this for a while and then said, goody Wemper, she didn't get out and about much, did she? It was her leg, you know, said McGrath. But she taught you all about the midwifery and everything. Oh, yes, that, said McGrath. I'd done lots. But, Granny hesitated, groping her way across unfamiliar territory. She never talked about what you might call the previous. Sorry? You know, said Granny, with an edge of desperation in her voice. Men and such. McGrath looked as if she was about to panic. What about them? Granny Weatherwax had done many unusual things in her time and it took a lot to make her refuse a challenge but this time she gave in I think she said helplessly that it might be a good idea if you have a quiet word with Nanny Org one of these days fairly soon there was a cackle of laughter from the window behind them a chink of glasses and a thin voice raised in song "Weather a giraffe. If you stand on a stool, but the hedgehog Granny stopped listening Only not just now, she added The troop got underway a few hours before sunset Their four carts lurching off down the road That led towards the Stowe Plains and the big cities Lancra had a town rule that all mummers, mountebanks, and other potential criminals were outside the gates by sundown. It didn't offend anyone, really, because the town had no walls to speak of, and no one much minded if people nipped back in again after dark. It was the look of the thing that counted. The witches watched from McGrath's cottage, using Nanny Og's ancient green crystal ball. It's about time you learned how to get sound on this thing, Granny muttered. She gave it a nudge, filling the image with ripples. It was very strange, said Magrat. in those carts. The things they had, paper trees and all kinds of costumes, and... She waved her hands. There was this great big picture of fawn parts, with all temples and things all rolled up. It was beautiful. Granny grunted. I thought it was amazing the way all those people became kings and things, didn't you? It was like magic. McGrath, garlic, what are you saying? It was just paint and paper. Anyone could see that. McGrath opened her mouth to speak, ran the ensuing argument through her head, and shut it again. Where's Nanny? She said. She's lying out on the lawn, said Granny. She felt a bit poorly. And from outside came the sound of Nanny Og being poorly at the top of her voice. McGrath sighed. You know, she said, if we are his godmothers, we ought to have given him three gifts. It's traditional. What are you talking about, girl? Three good witches are supposed to give the baby three gifts. You know, like good looks, wisdom, and happiness. McGrath pressed on defiantly. That's how it used to be done in the old days. Oh, You mean gingerbread cottages and all that, said Granny dismissively. Spinning wheels and pumpkins and pricking your fingers on rose thorns and similar, I could never be having with all that. She polished the ball reflectively. Yes, but, McGratt said. Granny glanced up at her. That was McGrath for you. Head full of pumpkins, everyone's fairy godmother for two pins a good soul underneath, kind to small furry animals, the sort of person who worried about baby birds falling out of nests. Look, if it makes you any happier, she muttered, surprised at herself. She waved her hands vaguely over the image of the departing carts. What's it to be? Wealth? Beauty? Well, money isn't everything, and if he takes after his father, he'll be handsome enough, McGrath said, suddenly serious. Wisdom, do you think? That's something he'll have to learn for himself, said Granny. Perfect eyesight? A good singing voice? From the lawn outside came Nanny Ogg's cracked but enthusiastic voice, telling the night sky that a wizard's staff has a knob on the end. Not important, said Granny loudly. You've got to think headology, see? Not muck about with all this beauty and wealth business, that's not important. She turned back to the ball and gestured half-heartedly. You'd better go and get Nanny then, seeing as there should be three of us. Nanny was helped in eventually and had to have things explained to her. Three gifts, eh? She said. Haven't done one of them things since I was a gal. It takes me back. What are you doing? McGrath was bustling around the room Lighting candles Oh, we've got to create the right magical ambience She explained Granny shrugged but said nothing Even in the face of the extreme provocation All witches did their magic their own way And this was Magrat's house What are we gonna give him then? Said Nanny We're just discussing it Said Granny I know what he'll want Said Nanny she made a suggestion, which was received in frozen silence. I don't see what use that would be, said McGrath eventually. Wouldn't it be rather uncomfortable? He'll thank as when he grows up. You mark my words, said Nanny. My first husband, he always said. Something a bit less physical is generally the style of things, interrupted Granny, glaring at Nanny Ogg. There's no need to go and spoil everything, Guyther. Why do you always have to—? Well, at least I can say that I—' Nanny began. Both voices faded to a mutter. There was a long, edgy silence. "'I think,' said McGrath, with brittle brightness, "'that perhaps it would be a good idea if we all go back to our little cottages and do it our own way. You know, separately. It's been a long day, and we're all rather tired.' Good idea," said Granny firmly, and stood up. "Come, Og,' she snapped. "It's been a long day, and we're all rather tired." Magrat heard them bickering as they wandered down the path. She sat rather sadly amidst the coloured candles, holding a small bottle of extremely thaumaturgical incense that she had ordered from a magical supplies emporium in faraway Ankh-Morpork. She had been rather looking forward to trying it. Sometimes she thought. It would be nice if people could be a bit kinder. She stared at the ball. Well, she could make a start. You will make friends easily, she whispered. It wasn't much, she knew, but it was something she'd never been able to get the hang of. Nanny Og, sitting alone in her kitchen with her huge tomcat curled up on her lap, poured herself a nightcap and through the haze, Tried to remember the words of verse 17 of the Hedgehog Song. There was something about goats, she recalled, but the details eluded her. Time abraded memory. She toasted the invisible presence. A bloody good memory is what he ought to have, she said. He'll always remember the words. And Granny Weatherwax, striding home alone through the Midnight Forest, "'wrapped her shawl around her and considered. "'It had been a long day, and a trying one. "'The theatre had been the worst part. "'All people pretending to be other people. "'Things happening that weren't real, "'bits of countryside you could put your foot through. "'Granny liked to know where she stood, "'and she wasn't certain she stood for that sort of thing. "'The world seemed to be changing all the time. "'It didn't used to change so much. "'It was bewildering.' She walked quickly through the darkness with the frank stride of someone who was at least certain that the forest, on this damp and windy night, contained strange and terrible things, and she was it. "'Let him be whoever he thinks he is,' she said. "'That's all anybody could hope for in this world.'" Like most people, witches are unfocused in time. The difference is, they dimly realise it and make use of it. They cherish the past because part of them is still living there, and they can see the shadows the future casts before it. Granny could feel the shape of the future, and it had knives in it. It began at five the next morning. Four men rode through the woods near Granny's cottage, tethering the horses out of earshot, and crept very cautiously through the mists. The sergeant in charge was not happy in his work. He was a ramtops man, and wasn't at all certain about how you went about arresting a witch. He was pretty certain, though, that the witch wouldn't like the idea. He didn't like the idea of a witch not liking the idea. The men were ramtoppers as well. They were following him very closely, ready to duck behind him at the first sign of anything more unexpected than a tree. Granny's cottage was a fungoid shape in the mist. Her unruly herb garden seemed to move, even in the still air. It contained plants seen nowhere else in the mountains, their roots and seeds traded across 5,000 miles of the Discworld, and the sergeant could swear that one or two blooms turned towards him. He shuddered. What now, Sarge? We... We spread out, he said. Yes, we spread out. That's what we do. They moved carefully through the bracken. The sergeant crouched behind a handy log and said, Right, very good. You have got the general idea. Now, let's spread out again. And this time we spread out separately. The men grumbled a bit but disappeared into the mist. The sergeant gave them a few minutes to take up positions, then said, Right, now we... Paused. He wondered whether he dared shout and decided against it. He stood up. He removed his helmet to show respect and sidled through the damp grass to the back door. He knocked very gently. After a wait of several seconds... "'clamped his helmet back on his head and said, "'No one in. Blast!' "'and started to stride away. "'The door opened. "'It opened very slowly "'and with the maximum amount of creak. "'Simple neglect wouldn't have caused that depth of groan. "'You needed careful work with hot water over a period of weeks. "'The sergeant stopped "'and then turned round very slowly "'while contriving to move as few muscles as possible.' He had mixed feelings about the fact that there was nothing in the doorway. In his experience, doors didn't just open themselves. He cleared his throat nervously. Granny Weatherwax, right by his ear, said That's a nasty cough you've got there. You did right in coming to me. The sergeant looked up at her with an expression of mad gratitude. He said Ugh oh She did what? said the Duke. The sergeant stared fixedly at an area a few inches to the right of the Duke's chair. She gave me a cup of tea, sir, he said. And what about your men? She get them one too, sir. The Duke rose from his chair and put his arm around the sergeant's rustling chainmail shoulders. He was in a bad mood. He had spent half the night washing his hands. He kept thinking that something was whispering in his ear. His breakfast oatmeal had been served up too salty and roasted with an apple in it. And the cook had hysterics in the kitchen. You could tell the duke was extremely annoyed. He was polite. The duke was the kind of man who becomes more and more agreeable as his temper drains away, until the point is reached where the words Thank you so much have the cutting edge of a guillotine. Sergeant, he said, walking the man slowly across the floor. Sir? I am not sure I made your orders clear, sergeant, said the duke in snake tones. Sir? I mean, it is possible I may have confused you. I meant to say, bring me a witch in chains, If necessary. But perhaps what I really said was, go and have a cup of tea. Was this in fact the case? The sergeant wrinkled his forehead. Sarcasm had not hitherto entered his life. His experience of people being annoyed with him generally involved shouting and occasional bits of wood. No, sir, he said. I wonder why, then, you did not in fact do this thing that I asked. I expect she said some magical words, did she? I've heard about witches Said the duke Who had spent the night before reading Until his bandaged hands shook too much Some of the more excitable works on the subject Written by wizards who are celibate And get some pretty funny ideas around four o'clock in the morning I imagine she offered you visions of unearthly delight Did she show you? The duke shuddered Dark fascinations and forbidden raptures, the like of which mortal men should not even think of, and demonic
0: secrets that took you to the depths of man's desires.
1: The Duke sat down and fanned himself with his handkerchief. Are you all right, sir? said the sergeant. What? Oh perfectly, perfectly. Only you've gone all red. Don't change the subject, man snapped the duke, pulling himself together. Admit it. She offered you hedonistic and licentious pleasures
0: known only to those who dabble in the carnal arts, didn't she?
1: The sergeant stood to attention and stared straight ahead. No, sir, he said, in the manner of one speaking the truth come what may. She offered me a ban. A ban? Yes, sir. It had currents in it. Felmut sat absolutely still while he fought for internal peace. Finally, all he could manage was, And what did your men do about this? They had a bun too, sir. All except young Roger, who isn't allowed fruit, sir, on account of his trouble. The Duke sagged back on the window seat and put his hand over his eyes. I was born to rule down on the plains, he thought where it's all flat and there isn't all this weather and everything and there are people who don't appear to be made of dough. He's going to tell me what this Roger had. He had a biscuit, sir. The Duke stared out at the trees. He was angry. He was extremely angry. But 20 years of marriage to Lady Filmet had taught him not simply to control his emotions, but to control his instincts as well. And not so much as the twitching of a muscle indicated the workings of his mind. Besides, arising out of the black depths of his head was an emotion that hitherto he had little time for. Curiosity was flashing a fin. The Duke had managed quite well for fifty years without finding a use for curiosity. It was not a trait much encouraged in an aristocrat. He had found certainty was a much better bet. However, it occurred to him that for once curiosity might have its uses. "'The sergeant was standing in the middle of the floor "'with the stolid air of one who is awaiting a word of command "'and who is quite prepared so to wait "'until continental drift budges him from his post. "'He had been in the undemanding service "'of the kings of Lancre for many years, and it showed. "'His body was standing to attention. "'Despite all his efforts, his stomach stood at ease. "'The duke's gaze fell on the fool.' Who was sitting on his stool by the throne? The hunched figure looked up, embarrassed, and gave his bells a half-hearted shake. The Duke reached a decision. The way to progress, he'd found, was to find weak spots. He'd tried to shut away the thought that these included such things as king's kidneys at the top of dark stairways, and concentrated on the matter in hand. And he'd scrubbed and scrubbed. But it seemed to have no effect. Eventually, he'd gone down to the dungeons and borrowed one of the torturer's wire brushes and scrubbed and scrubbed with that too. That had had no effect either. It had made it worse. The harder he scrubbed, the more blood there was. He was afraid he might go mad. He wrestled the thought to the back of his mind. Weak spots, that was it. The fool looked all weak spot. You may go, Sergeant said the sergeant, and marched out stiffly. Fool Marry, sir? said the fool, nervously. He gave his hated medallion a quick strum. The Duke sat down on the throne. I am already extremely married, he said. Advise me, my fool. If faith, uncle, said the fool. Nor am I thine uncle. I feel sure I would have remembered said Lord Felmut, leaning down until the prow of his nose was a few inches from the fool's stricken face. If you preface your next remark with an uncle, faith, or Mary, it will go hard with you. The fool moved his lips silently and then said, How do you feel about prithee?' The Duke knew when to allow some slack. Prithy I can live with, he said. So can you, but no capoon. He grinned encouragingly. How long have you been a fool, boy? Prithee, sirrah, The thirer, said the duke, holding up a hand. On the whole, I think not. Prithee, sirrah, sir, said the fool and swallowed nervously. All my life, sir. Seventeen years under the bladder, man and boy and my father before me, and my uncle at the same time as him, and my granddad before them, and his... Your whole family have been fools. Family tradition, sir, said the fool. Prithee, I mean... The duke smiled again, and the fool was too worried to notice how many teeth it contained. You come from these paths, don't you? said the duke. Ma- yes, sir. So you would know all about the natives beliefs, and so on. I suppose so, sir, pretty. Good. Where do you sleep, my fool? In the stable, sir. From now on, you may sleep in the corridor outside my room, said the Duke, beneficently. Gosh! And now, said the Duke, his voice dripping across the fool like treacle over a pudding, tell me about... Witches. That night, the fool slept on good royal flagstones in the whistling corridor above the great hall, instead of the warm, stuffy straw of the stables. This is foolish, he told himself. Mary, but is it foolish enough? He dozed off fitfully, into some sort of dream where a vague figure kept trying to attract his attention, and was only dimly aware of the voices of Lord and Lady Felmet on the other side of the door.
0: It's certainly a lot less draughty,
1: said the Duchess grudgingly. The Duke sat back in the armchair and smiled at his wife. Well, she demanded, where are the witches? The Chamberlain would appear to be right, beloved. The witches seem to have the local people in thrall. The sergeant of the guard came back empty-handed. Handed? He came down heavily on the importunate thought. You must have him executed, she said promptly, to make an
0: example to the others.
1: A course of action, my dear, which ultimately results in us ordering the last soldier to cut his own throat as an example to himself. By the way, he added mildly, there would appear to be somewhat fewer servants around the place.
0: You know I would not normally interfere. Then don't, she snapped. Housekeeping is under my control. I cannot abide slackness. I'm sure you know best, but what of these riches? Will you stand idly by and let trouble seed for the future? Will you let these riches defy you? What of the crown? The Duke shrugged. No doubt it ended in the river, he said. And the child? He was given to the witches. Do they do human sacrifice? It would appear not,
1: said the Duke. The Duchess looked vaguely disappointed. These witches, said the Duke, apparently they seem to cast a spell on people. Well, obviously. Not like a magic spell. They seem to be respected. They do medicine and so on. It's rather strange. The mountain people seem to be afraid of them and proud of them at the same time. It might be a little difficult to move against them. I could come to believe, said the Duchess darkly, that they have cast a glamour over you as well. In fact, the Duke was intrigued. Power was always darkly fascinating, which was why he had married the Duchess in the first place. He stared fixedly at the fire. In fact, said the Duchess, who recognized the malign
0: smile. You like it, don't you? The thought of the danger. I remember when we were married, all that business with the knotted rope.
1: She snapped her fingers in front of the Duke's glazed eyes. He sat up.
0: Not at all, he shouted. Then what will you do? Wait. Wait?
1: Wait and consider. Patience is a virtue. The duke sat back. The smile he smiled could have spent a million years sitting on a rock. And then, just below one eye, he started to twitch. Blood was oozing between the bandages on his hand. Once again the full moon rode the clouds. Granny Weatherwax milked and fed the goats, banked the fire, put a cloth over the mirror, and pulled her broomstick out from behind the door. She went out, locked the back door behind her, and hung the key on its nail in the privy. This was quite sufficient. Only once in the entire history of witchery in Ramtops had a thief broken into a witch's cottage. The witch concerned visited the most terrible punishment on him. She did nothing, although sometimes when she saw him in the village she'd smile in a faint, puzzled way. After three weeks of this, the suspense was too much for him and he took his own life. In fact, he took it all the way across the continent, where he became a reformed character and never went home again. Granny sat on the broom and muttered a few words, but without much conviction. After a further couple of tries, she got off, fiddled with the binding, and had another go. There was a suspicion of glitter from one end of the stick, which quickly died away. Drat, she said under her breath. She looked around carefully in case anyone was watching. In fact, it was only a hunting badger who, hearing the thumping of running feet, poked its head out of the bushes and saw Granny hurtling down the path with a broomstick held stiff-armed beside her. At last the magic caught, and she managed to vault clumsily onto it before it trundled into the night sky as graceful as a duck with one wing missing. From above the trees came a muffled curse against all dwarfish mechanics. Most witches preferred to live in isolated cottages with the traditional curly chimneys and weed-grown thatch, Granny Weatherwax approved of this. It was no good being a witch unless you let people know. Nanny Og didn't much care about what people knew, and even less for what they thought, and lived in a new, knick-knack-crammed cottage in the middle of Lancre town itself and at the heart of her own private empire. Various daughters and daughters-in-law came in to cook and clean on a sort of rota. Every flat surface was stuffed with ornaments brought back by far-travelling members of the family, sons and grandsons kept the log pile stacked the roof shingled the chimney swept the drinks cabinet was always full the pouch by her rocking chair always stuffed with tobacco above the hearth was a huge poker work sign saying mother no tyrant in the whole history of the world had ever achieved a domination so complete nanny Og also kept a cat a huge one-eyed gray tom called Gribo, who divided his time between sleeping eating, and fathering the most enormous incestuous feline tribe. He opened his eye like a yellow window into hell when he heard Granny's broomstick land awkwardly on the back lawn. With the instinct of his kind, he recognised Granny as an inveterate cat-hater and oozed gently under a chair. McGrath was already seated primly by the fire. It is one of the few unbendable rules of magic that its practitioners cannot change their own appearance for any length of time. Their bodies develop a kind of morphic inertia and gradually return to their original shape. But McGrath tried. Every morning her hair was long, thick and blonde, but by the evening it had always returned to its normal, worried frizz. To ameliorate the effect, she had to try to plait violets and cowslips in it, The result was not all she had hoped. It gave the impression that a window box had fallen on her head. Good evening, said Granny. Well met by moonlight, said McGrath politely. Merry meet, a star shines on. Watcher, said Nanny Og. McGrath winced. Granny sat down and started removing the hat pins that nailed her tall hat to her bun. Finally, the sight of Magrat dawned on her. Magrat. The young witch jumped and clamped her knuckly hands to the virtuous frontage of her gown. Yes? She quavered. What have you got on your lap? It's my familiar, she said defensively. What happened to that toad you had? It wandered off, muttered Magrat. Anyway... It wasn't very good. Granny sighed. McGrath's desperate search for a reliable familiar had been going on for some time, and despite the love and attention she lavished on them, they all seemed to have some terrible flaw, such as a tendency to bite, get trodden on, or, in extreme cases, metamorphose. That makes fifteen this year, said Granny, not counting the horse. What's this one? It's a rock, chuckled Nanny Og. Well, at least it should last, said Granny. The rock extended a head and gave her a look of mild amusement. It's a tortoise, said McGrath. I bought it down in Sheepbridge Market. It's incredibly old and knows many secrets, the man said. I know that man, said Granny. He's the one who sells goldfish that tarnish after a day or two. Anyway, I shall call him Lightfoot, said McGrath, her voice warm with defiance. I can if I want. Yes, yes, all right, I'm sure, said Granny. Anyway, how goes it, sisters? It's two months since last we met. It should be every new moon, said McGrath sternly, regular It was our Graham's youngest wedding, said Nanny Og. Couldn't miss it. And I was up all night with a sick goat, said Granny Weatherwax promptly. Yes, well, said McGrath doubtfully. She rummaged in her bag. Anyway, if we're going to start, we'd better light the candles. The senior witches exchanged a resigned glance. But we've got this lovely new lamp our Tracy sent me, said Nanny Og innocently and I was going to poke up the fire a bit. I have excellent night vision, McGrath, said Nanny sternly, and you've been reading them funny books, Grimmers. Grimoires. You ain't going to draw on the floor again, neither, warned Nanny Og. It took our dream days to clear up after those wass' names last time. Runes, said McGrath. There was a look of pleading in her eyes. Look, just one candle. All right, said Nanny Og, relenting a bit. If it makes you feel any better, just the one, mind. And a decent white one, nothing fancy. McGrath sighed. It probably wasn't a good idea to bring out the rest of the contents of her bag. We ought to get a few more here, she said sadly. It's not right, a coven of three. I didn't know we were still a coven. <laughs> no one told me we were still a coven, sniffed Granny Weatherwax. Anyway, there's no one else this side of the mountain excepting old Gamma Dismas, and she doesn't get out these days. But a lot of young girls in my village, said McGrath. You know, they could be keen. That's not how we do it, as well you know. Said Granny disapprovingly People don't go out and find witchcraft It comes and finds them Yes, yes Said McGrath Sorry Right Said Granny slightly mollified She'd never mastered the talent for apologising But she appreciated it in other people What about this new joke then? Said Nanny To lighten the atmosphere Granny sat back he had some houses burned down in badass, she said, because of taxes. How horrible, said Magrat, Oh King Varence used to do that, said Nanny. Terrible temper he had. He used to let people get out first, though, said Granny. Oh, yes, said Nanny, who was a staunch royalist. He could be very gracious like that. He pay for them to be rebuilt as often as not, if he remembered. And every hogs watch night, a side of venison, regular, said Granny wistfully. Oh yes, very respectful to witches he was, added Nannyog. When he was out hunting people, if he met me in the woods, it was always off with his helmet and I hopes I finds you well, Mistress Og. And next day he'd send his butler down with a couple of bottles or something. He was a proper king. Hunting people isn't really right, though, said McGrath. Well, no, Granny Weatherwax conceded. But it was only if they'd done something bad. He said they enjoyed it, really. He used to let them go, if they gave him a good run. And then there was that great hairy thing of his, said Nanny Og. There was a perceptible change in the atmosphere. It became warmer, darker, filled at the corners with the shadow of unspoken conspiracy. Ah, said Granny Weatherwax distantly, his doi de seigneur. Needed a lot of exercise, said Nanny Og, staring at the fire. But next day he'd send his housekeeper round with a bag of silver and a hamper of stuff for the wedding, said Granny. Many a couple got a proper start in life, thanks to that. Ah, agreed Nanny. One or two individuals, too. Every inch a king, said Granny. What are you talking about? said McGrath suspiciously. Did he keep pets? The two witches surfaced from whatever deep current they had been swimming in. Granny Weatherwax shrugged. I must say, McGrath went on in severe tones. If you think so much of the old king, you don't seem very worried about him being killed. I mean, it was a pretty suspicious accident. That's kings for you, said Granny. They come and go, good and bad. His father poisoned the king we had before. It was old Thargum, said Nanny Og. Had a big red beard, I recall. He was very gracious too, you know. Only now, no one must say Felmut killed the king, said McGratt. What? Said Granny. He had some people executed in Loncra the other day for saying it, McGratt went on. Spreading malicious lies, he said. He said, anyone saying different will see the insides of his dungeons, only not for long. He said, Varence died of natural causes. Well, being assassinated is natural causes for a king, said Granny. I don't see why he's so sheepish about it. When old Thargum was killed, they stuck his head on a pole, had a big bonfire, and everyone in the palace got drunk for a week. I remember, said Nanny. They carried his head all round the villages to show he was dead. Very convincing, I thought, especially for him. He was grinning. I think it was the way he would have liked to go. I think we might have to keep an eye on this one, though, said Granny. I think he might be a bit clever. That's not a good thing in a king. And I don't think he knows how to show respect. A man came to see me last week. To ask if I wanted to pay any taxes, said McGrath. I told him no. He came to see me, too, said Nanny Og, But our Jason and our wine went out and told him we didn't want to join. Small man, bald, black cloak, said Granny thoughtfully. Yes, said the other two. He was hanging about in my raspberry bushes, said Granny. Only when I went out to see what he wanted, he ran away. Actually, I gave him tuppence, said McGrath. He said he was going to be tortured, you see, if he didn't get witches to pay their taxes. Lord Felmett looked carefully at the two coins in his lap. Then he looked at his tax gatherer. Well, he said. The tax gatherer cleared his throat. throat. Well, sir, you see... I explained about the need to employ a standing army, etc. And they said, why? And I said, because of bandits, etc. And they said, bandits never bothered them. And civil works? Ah, yes. Well, I pointed out the need to build and maintain bridges, etc. And? They said they didn't use them. Ah, said the Duke knowledgeably. They can't cross running water. Not sure about that, sir. I think witches cross anything they like. Did they say anything else? Said the duke. The tax gatherer twisted the hem of his robe distractedly. Well, sir, I mentioned how taxes help to maintain the king's peace, sir. And? They said the king should maintain his own peace, sir. And then they gave me a look. "'What sort of look?' "'The duke sat with his thin face cupped in one hand. "'He was fascinated. "'It's sort of hard to describe,' said the taxman. "'He tried to avoid Lord Felmont's gaze, "'which was giving him the distinct impression "'that the tiled floor was fleeing away in all directions "'and had already covered several acres. "'Lord Felmont's fascination was to him "'what a pin is to a purple emperor.' "'Try,' the Duke invited. "'The taxman blushed. "'Well,' he said, "'it wasn't nice.' "'Which demonstrates that the tax-gatherer "'was much better at figures than words. "'What he would have said if embarrassment, fear, "'poor memory and a complete lack of any kind of imagination "'hadn't conspired against it, was, "'When I was a little boy and staying with my aunt,' and she had told me not to touch the cream, etc., and she had put it on a high shelf in the pantry, and I'd got a stool and went after it when she was out anyway, and she'd come back and I didn't know, and I couldn't reach the ball properly, and it smashed to the floor, and she opened the door and glared at me. It was that look. But the worst thing was, they knew it. Not nice, said the Duke. No, sir. The Duke drummed the fingers of his left hand on the arm of his throne. The tax gatherer coughed again. <coughs> you're, you're not going to force me to go back, are you? He said. "Hm," mm? Said the Duke. Waved a hand irritably. No, no. He said. Not at all. Just call in at the torturer on your way out. See when he can fit you in. "'The taxman gave him a look of gratitude and bobbed a bow. "'Yes, sir, at once, sir, thank you, sir, you're very—' "'Yes, yes,' said Lord Felmont absently. "'You may go.' "'The Duke was left alone in the vastness of the hall. "'It was raining again. "'Every once in a while a piece of plaster smashed down on the tiles, "'and there was a crunching from the walls as they settled still further.' The air smelled of old cellars. Gods, he hated this kingdom. It was so small, only forty miles long and maybe ten miles wide, and nearly all of it was cruel mountains with ice-green slopes and knife-edge crests, or dense, huddled forests. A kingdom like that shouldn't be any trouble. What he couldn't quite fathom was this feeling that it had debt. It seemed to contain far too much geography. He rose and paced the floor to the balcony, with its unrivaled view of trees. It struck him that the trees were also looking back at him. He could feel the resentment, but that was odd, because the people themselves hadn't objected. They didn't seem to object to anything very much. Berentz had been popular enough in his way. There had been quite a turn-up for the funeral. He recalled the lines of solemn faces, not stupid faces, by no means stupid, just preoccupied, as though what kings did wasn't really very important. He found that almost as annoying as trees. A jolly good riot now. That would have been more... more appropriate. One could have ridden out and hanged people. There would have been the creative tension so essential to the proper development of the state. Back down on the plains, if you kicked people, they kicked back. Up here, when you kicked people, they moved away, and just waited patiently for your leg to fall off. How could a king go down in history ruling a people like that? You couldn't oppress them any more than you could oppress a mattress. He had raised taxes and burned a few villages on general principles, just to show everyone who they were dealing with. Didn't seem to have any effect. And then there were these witches. They haunted him. Fool. The fool, who had been having a quiet doze behind the throne, awoke in terror. Yes? Come hither, fool. The fool jingled miserably across the floor. Tell me, fool, does it always rain here? Marry, uncle. Just answer the question. "'said Lord Felment with iron patience. "'Sometimes it stops, sir, to make room for the snow, "'and sometimes we get some right squandering orgulous fogs,' "'said the fool. Orgulous, said the Duke absently. "'The fool couldn't stop himself. "'His horrified ears heard his mouth blurt out, "'Thick, my lord, from the Latatian orgulum, a soup or broth.' "'But the Duke wasn't listening.' Listening to the prattling of underlings was not, in his experience, particularly worthwhile. I'm bored, fool. Let me entertain you, my lord, with many a merry quip and lightsome jest. Try me. The fool licked his dry lips. He hadn't actually expected this. King Varence had been happy enough just to give him a kick or throw a bottle at his head. A real king. I'm waiting. Make me laugh. The fool took the plunge. Why, sir? He quavered. Why may a cordled fill horse be deemed the brother to a hiring candle in the night? The duke frowned. The fool felt it better not to wait. Withal, because a candle may be greased, yet a fill horse be without a fat argia, he said. And because it was part of the joke, patted Lord Felmut lightly with his balloon on a stick and twanged his mandolin. The duke's index finger tapped an abrupt tattoo on the arm of his throne. Yes, he said. And then what happened? That er uh, was by way of being the whole thing, said the fool, and added, my granddad thought it was one of his best. I dare say he told it differently, said the duke. He stood up. Thummon my huntsman. I think I shall ride out on the chase, and you can come too. My lord, I cannot ride. For the first time that morning, Lord Felmut smiled. Capital, he said. We will give you a horse that can't be ridden. (laughs) He looked down at his bandages, and afterwards, he told himself, I'll get the armorer to send me up a file. A year went past. The days followed one another patiently. Right back at the beginning of the multiverse, they had tried all passing at the same time, and it hadn't worked. Tom John sat under Howell's rickety table, watching his father as he walked up and down between the lattices, waving one arm and talking. Fatala always waved his arms when he spoke. If you tied his hands behind his back, he would be dumb.
0: All right,
1: he was saying. How about the king's brides? Last year, said the voice of How, All right then, we'll give them Mallow, the tyrant of Clatch, said Vitola. And his larynx smoothly changed gear as his voice became a great rolling thing that could rattle the windows across the width of the average town square.
0: "'In blood I came, and by blood rule. "'No one will dare assay these walls of blood.' "'We did it the year before,'
1: said Howell calmly. "'Anyway, people are fed up with kings. "'They want a bit of a chuckle.'
0: "'They are not fed up with my kings,' said Vitola. "'My dear boy, people do not come to the theatre to laugh. "'They come to experience.' "'To learn, to wonder.' "'To
1: laugh,' said Howell flatly. "'Have a look at this one.' Tom John heard the rustle of papers and the creak of wickerwork as Vitola lowered his weight onto the prop basket.
0: "'A wizard of sorts,' Vitola read. "'Or oh, please yourself.'
1: "'Howell stretched his legs under the table and dislodged Tom John.' He hauled the boy out by one ear. What's this? said Vitola. Wizards, demons, imps, merchants. I'm rather pleased with Act Two, Scene Four, said Howell, propelling the toddler towards the prop box. Comic washing up with two servants. Any deathbed scenes? said Vitola, hopefully. No, said Howell. But I can do you a humorous monologue in Act Three. A humorous monologue? All right. There's room for a soliloquy in the last act, said Howell hurriedly. I'll write one tonight, no
0: problem. And a stabbing, said Vitola, getting to his feet. A foul murder that always goes
1: down well. He strode away to organise the setting up of the stage. Howell sighed and picked up his quill. Somewhere behind the sacking walls was the town of Hangdog, which had somehow allowed itself to be built in a hollow perched in the near sheer walls of the canyon. There was plenty of flat ground in the Ram Tops. The problem was that nearly all of it was vertical. Howell didn't like the Ram Tops, which was odd, because it was traditional dwarf country and he was a dwarf. But he'd been banished from his tribe years ago, not only because of his claustrophobia, also because he had a tendency to daydream. It was felt by the local dwarf king that this is not a valuable talent for someone who is supposed to swing a pickaxe without forgetting what he is supposed to hit with it. And so Hal had been given a very small bag of gold, the tribe's heartfelt best wishes, and a firm goodbye. It had happened that Vitola's strolling players had been passing through at the time, and the dwarf had ventured one small copper coin on a performance of The Dragon of the Plains, he had watched it without a muscle moving in his face, gone back to his lodgings, and in the morning had knocked on Vitola's latte with the first draft of King Under the Mountain. It wasn't in fact very good, but Vitola had been perceptive enough to see that inside the hairy bullet head was an imagination big enough to bestride the world, and so, when the strolling players strolled off, one of them was running to keep up. Particles of raw inspiration sleep through the universe all the time. Every once in a while, one of them hits a receptive mind, which then invents DNA, or the flute sonata form, or a way of making light bulbs wear out in half the time. But most of them miss. Most people go through their lives without being hit by even one. Some people are even more unfortunate. They get them all. Such a one was Howell. Enough inspirations to equip a complete history of the performing arts poured continuously into a small heavy skull designed by evolution to do nothing more spectacular than be remarkably resistant to axe blows. He licked his quill and looked bashfully around the camp. No one was watching. He carefully lifted up the wizard and revealed another stack of paper. It wasn't another pot-boiler, Every page was stained with sweat, and the words themselves scrawled across the manuscript on a trellis of blots and crossings out, and tiny scribbled insertions. Howell stared at it for a moment, alone in a world that consisted of him, the next blank page, and the shouting, clamorous voices that haunted his dreams. He began to write. Free of Howell's never-too-stringent attention, Tom John pushed open the lid of the props hamper and in the methodical way of the very young began to unpack the crowns. The dwarf stuck out his tongue as he piloted the errant quill across the ink-speckled page. He'd found room for the star-crossed lovers, the comic grave diggers, and the hunchback king. It was the cats and the roller skates that were currently giving him trouble. A gurgle made him look up, For goodness sake, lad, he said.
0: It hardly fits. Put it back. End of CD 2